Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Time enough at last by Lynn Venable. This was first published in If Worlds of Science Fiction, January 1953, and it is one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone, um, coming out in 1959. Um, Lynn Venable is still alive, as far as I can tell. Um, she's in her late 90s, it sounds like, and. Uh, uh, she's not super famous as a science fiction author. There's a few other stories by her, like uh, maybe a handful and a half. Um, but this one is amazingly famous. And I think that it's because it was a Twilight Zone episode, because this story, reading it on the page, is fairly insubstantial. But um, I think that just means, you know, we need to look at everything a little more carefully, because... Uh, it's not an insubstantial in the history of science fiction and sort of the history of uh, literature. It, it feels a lot more of a heavyweight when you think of how amazingly uh, popular it is. But um, the, the, we're not talking about the, the actual Twilight Zone episode. We're going to talk about the story. And I'm going to ask you to read it to us because it's pretty short. And then maybe we can talk about why it feels like such a substantial story. Well, I, I agree. I, I will happily read it. It's a good story. Uh, I agree that we should look at things more carefully. That's, that's the whole premise behind reading, short and deep. Uh, but I think that this actually is a, a story that has a lot going on in it. Mm-hmm. And the more you slow down and pay attention, uh, it may be easier for me than for you because... I remember 1953. (laughs) So here we go. Time enough at last. For a long time, Henry Bemis had had an ambition to read a book, not just the title or the preface or a page somewhere in the middle. He wanted to read the whole thing all the way through from beginning to end. A simple ambition, perhaps, but in the cluttered life of Henry Bemis, an impossibility. Henry had no time of his own. There was his wife, Agnes, who owned that part of it that his employer, Mr. Carsville, did not buy. Henry was allowed enough to get to and from work, that in itself being quite a concession on Agnes's part. Also, nature had conspired against Henry by handing him a pair of hopelessly myopic eyes. Poor Henry literally couldn't see his hand in front of his face. For a while, when he was very young, his parents had thought him an idiot. When they realized it was his eyes, they got him glasses. He was never quite able to catch up. There was never enough time. It looked as though Henry's ambition would never be realized. Then something happened which changed all that. Henry was down in the vault of the East Side Bank and Trust when it happened. He had stolen a few moments from the duties of his teller's cage to try to read a few pages of the magazine he had bought that morning. He'd made an excuse to Mr. Carsville about needing bills in large denominations for a certain customer, and then, safe inside the dim recesses of the vault, he had pulled from inside his coat the pocket-sized magazine. He had just started a picture article cheerfully entitled, The New Weapons and What They'll Do to You 
when all the noise in the world crashed in upon his eardrums, it seemed to be inside of him and outside of him all at once. Then the concrete floor was rising up at him and the ceiling came slanting down toward him. And for a fleeting second, Henry thought of a story he had started to read once called The Pit and the Pendulum. He regretted in that insane moment that he had never had the time to finish that story to see how it came out. Then all was darkness and quiet and unconsciousness. When Henry came to, he knew that something was desperately wrong with the East Side Bank and Trust. The heavy steel door of the vault was buckled and twisted and the floor tilted up at a dizzy angle while the ceiling dipped crazily toward it. Henry gingerly got to his feet, moving arms and legs experimentally. Assured that nothing was broken, he tenderly raised a hand to his eyes. His precious glasses were intact. Thank God he would never have been able to find his way out of the shattered vault without them. He made a mental note to write Dr. Torrance to have a spare pair made and mailed to him. Blasted nuisance not having his prescription on file locally, but Henry trusted no one but Dr. Torrance to grind those thick lenses into his own complicated prescription. Henry removed the heavy glasses from his face. Instantly, the room dissolved into a neutral blur. Henry saw a pink splash that he knew was his hand and a white blob come up to meet the pink as he withdrew his pocket handkerchief and carefully dusted the lenses. As he replaced the glasses, they slipped down on the bridge of his nose a little. He had been meaning to have them tightened for some time. He suddenly realized, without the realization actually entering his conscious thoughts, that something momentous had happened, something worse than the boiler blowing up, something worse than a gas main exploding, something worse than anything that had ever happened before. He felt that way because it was so quiet. There was no whine of sirens, no shouting, no running, just an ominous and all-pervading silence. Henry walked across the slanting floor, slipping and stumbling on the uneven surface. He made his way to the elevator. The car lay crumpled at the foot of the shaft like a discarded accordion. There was something inside of it that Henry could not look at, something that had once been a person, or perhaps several people. It was impossible to tell now. Feeling sick, Henry staggered toward the stairway. The steps were still there, but so jumbled and piled back upon one another that it was more like climbing the side of a mountain than mounting a stairway. It was quiet in the huge chamber that had been the lobby of the bank. It looked strangely cheerful, with the sunlight shining through the girders where the ceiling had fallen. The dappled sunlight glinted across the silent lobby, and everywhere there were huddled lumps of unpleasantness that made Henry sick as he tried not to look at them. Mr. Carsville, he called. It was very quiet. Something had to be done. Of course, this was terrible right in the middle of a Monday, too. Mr. Carsville would know what to do. He called again more loudly, and his voice cracked hoarsely. Mr. Carsville! And then he saw an arm and shoulder extending from under a huge fallen block of marble ceiling. In the buttonhole was the white carnation Mr. Carsville had worn to work that morning, and on the third finger of that hand was a massive signet ring also belonging to Mr. Carsville. Numbly, Henry realized that the rest of Mr. Carsville 
was under that block of marble. Henry felt a pang of real sorrow. Mr. Carsville was gone, and so was the rest of the staff, Mr. Wilkinson and Mr. Emery and Mr. Prithard, and the same with Pete and Ralph and Jenkins and Hunter and Pat the guard and Willie the doorman. There was no one to say what was to be done about the Eastside Bank and Trust except Henry Bemis. And Henry wasn't worried about the bank. There was something he wanted to do. He climbed carefully over piles of fallen masonry. Once he stepped down into something that crunched and squashed beneath his feet, and he set his teeth on edge to keep from retching. The street was not much different from the inside. Bright sunlight and so much concrete to crawl over. But the unpleasantness was much, much worse. Everywhere there were strange, motionless lumps that Henry could not look at. Suddenly, he remembered Agnes. He should be trying to get to Agnes, shouldn't he? He remembered a poster he had seen that said, In event of emergency, do not use the telephone. Your loved ones are as safe as you. He wondered about Agnes. He looked at the smashed automobiles, some of their four wheels pointing skyward like the stiffened legs of dead animals. He couldn't get to Agnes now anyway. If she was safe, then she was safe. Otherwise, uh, of course, Henry knew Agnes wasn't safe. He had a feeling that there wasn't anyone safe for a long, long way. Maybe not in the whole state or the whole country or the whole world. No, that was a thought Henry didn't want to think. He forced it from his mind and turned his thoughts back to Agnes. She had been a pretty good wife now that it was all said and done. It wasn't exactly her fault that people didn't have time to read nowadays. It was just that there was the house and the bank and the yard. There were the Joneses for Bridge and the Graysons for Canasta and charades with the Bryants. And the television, the television Agnes loved to watch but would never watch alone. He never had time to read even a newspaper. He started thinking about last night, that business about the newspaper. Henry had settled into his chair, quietly afraid that a creaking spring might call to Agnes's attention the fact that he was momentarily unoccupied. He had unfolded the newspaper slowly and carefully. The sharp crackle of the paper would have been a clarion call to Agnes. He had glanced at the headlines of the first page. Collapse of conference imminent. He didn't have time to read the article. He turned to the second page. Solon predicts war only days away. He flipped through the pages faster, reading brief snatches here and there, afraid to spend too much time on any one item. On a back page was a brief article entitled, Prehistoric Artifacts Unearthed in Yucatan. Henry smiled to himself and carefully folded the sheet of paper into fourths. That would be interesting. He would read all of it. Then it came, Agnes's voice, Henry! And then she was upon him. She lightly flicked the paper out of his hands and into the fireplace. He saw the flames lick up and curl possessively around the unread article. Agnes continued, Henry, tonight is the Joneses bridge night. They'll be here in 30 minutes and I'm not dressed yet. And here you are reading. She has emphasized the last word as though it were an unclean act. Hurry and shave. You know how smooth Jasper Jones' chin always looks. And then straighten up this room. She glanced regretfully toward the fireplace. Oh, dear that paper the television schedule oh well after the joneses leave there won't be time for anything but the late late movie and don't just sit there henry hurry 
Henry was hurrying now, but hurrying too much. He cut his leg on a twisted piece of metal that had been an automobile fender. He thought about things like lockjaw and gangrene, and his hand tumbled as he tied his pocket handkerchief around the wound. In his mind, he saw the fire again licking across the face of last night's newspaper. He thought that now he would have time to read all the newspapers he wanted to, only now there wouldn't be any more. That heap of rubble across the street had been the Gazette building. It was terrible to think there would never be another up-to-date newspaper. Agnes would have been very upset. No television schedule. But then, of course, no television. He wanted to laugh, but he didn't. That wouldn't have been fitting, not at all. He could see the building he was looking for now, but the silhouette was strangely changed. The great circular dome was now a ragged semicircle, half of it gone, and one of the great wings of the building had fallen in upon itself. A sudden panic gripped Henry Bemis. What if they were all ruined, destroyed, every one of them? What if there wasn't a single one left? Tears of helplessness welled in his eyes as he painfully fought his way over and through the twisted fragments of the city. He thought of the building when it had been whole. He remembered the many nights he had paused outside its wide and welcoming doors. He thought of the warm nights when the doors had been thrown open, and he could see the people inside, see them sitting at the plain wooden tables with the stacks of books beside them. He used to think then, what a wonderful thing a public library was, a place where anybody, anybody at all could go in and read. He had been tempted to enter many times. He had watched the people through the open doors, the man in greasy work clothes who sat near the door night after night, laboriously studying. A technical journal, perhaps, difficult for him, but promising a brighter future. There had been an aged, scholarly gentleman who sat on the other side of the door, leisurely paging, moving his lips a little as he did so, a man having little time left, but rich in time because he could do it, because he could do with it as he chose. Henry had never gone in. He had started up the steps once, had got almost to the door, but then he remembered Agnes, her questions and shouting, and he had turned away. He was going in now, though almost crawling, his breath coming in stabbing gasps, his hands torn and bleeding, his trouser leg was sticky red where the wound in his leg had soaked through the handkerchief. It was throbbing badly, but Henry didn't care. He had reached his destination. Part of the inscription was still there over the now doorless entrance, P-U-B-C, L-I-B-R, the rest had been torn away. The place was in shambles. The shelves were overturned, broken, smashed, tilted. Their, their precious contents spilled in disorder upon the floor. A lot of the books, Henry noted gleefully, were still intact, still whole, still readable. He was literally knee-deep in them. He wallowed in books. He picked one up. The title was Collected Works of William Shakespeare. Yes, he must read that sometime. He laid it aside carefully. He picked up another, Spinoza. He tossed it away, seized another and another and still another, which to read first. There were so many. He had been conducting himself a little like a starving man in a delicatessen, grabbing a little of this and a little of that in a frenzy of enjoyment. But now he steadied himself from the pile about him. He selected one volume. He sat comfortably down on an overturned shelf and opened the book. Henry Bemis smiled. 
there was the rumble of complaining stone, minute in comparison with the epic complaints following the fall of the bomb. This one occurred under one corner of the shelf upon which Henry sat. The shelf moved, threw him off balance, the glasses slipped from his nose and fell with a tinkle. He bent down, clawing blindly, and found finally their smashed remains, a minor indirect destruction stemming from the sudden wholesale smashing of a city, but the only one that greatly interested Henry Bemis. He stared down at the blurred page before him. He began to cry. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I totally get why. Rod Serling was like, I'm going to adapt this because it is a classically Twilight zone right? It's an alternate alternate present uh, in which a uh, regular person experiences something that is horrible. Um, and then we've got that twist, that twist ending, right? Um, uh, um, before we get too deep into this, I just want to talk about how iconic this this image is. The 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 adaptation from 1959 in the Twilight Zone has Burgess Meredith playing Henry Bemis. Um, the dialogue's not identical, um, but it you know it has that opening and closing narration. But then um, we see that exquisite scene where he's. He's climbing the library steps all covered with broken rubble and he's piling up the books and he's so excited and he's got those thick lenses on and he sits down to enjoy and just so happy about having the possibility of being able to read a book and then his glasses that, as right in this story, you know, they needed to be tightened. (laughs) They needed to be checked. He needs to get a second pair from his his doctor they fall and are destroyed um and of course he's crying <laughs> the world just ended but that's not that's not the big problem the big problem is he can't read now there was time now he says we never get that that little speech at the end but uh we also as readers can turn back to the first page and see that title time enough at last it's a lie oh the humanity it's a it's a wonderful wonderful image and it's super iconic um i was showing my students yesterday uh there's a a a show a tv show within futurama um which is a show created by the guy who did the simpsons and a show called disenchanted um cartoon um which is a parody of the Twilight Zone, and they do a parody of this particular story, in which we see a Henry Bemis-looking guy climbing the steps. Um, everything, he's so excited about being able to read, and anybody who's seen the Twilight Zone episode instantly recognizes it as a parody of that. And um, after this nuclear war, he's piling up the books, and he's so excited, and his eyes fall out. <laughs> Instead of his glasses breaking. And he says, he says instead, uh, that's okay. I can, I can read Braille. And his hands fall off. (laughs) (laughs) That's the point, is that 
this is a story of tragic irony, right? He, he finally gets what he wants. He's escaped his harridan wife, the, his boss who, who buys his time. There's never enough time just to read, to relax and read. And, of course, of course, that's why it's so iconic. It's a Greek tragedy in the form of a science fiction story. Amazing. I, I think you're right about the Twilight Zone. I think you're right that this story is is ripe for Rod Serling's plucking, and I think you're right about your description of that episode. But I'd like to say I think this story, as a story all by itself, is quite worthy of being read and remembered. I mm-hmm. think that it has been supplanted by the Rod Serling um, version in the cultural imagination oh, but yeah. had that not happened this would have stood on its own let me let me point out some things that that make this story i think in an unconscious way um perhaps unconscious way really quite powerful you know venable says that that bemis became realized something but not in a conscious way and then shows us that he, he proceeds uh, on the basis of what he knows, but he's unconscious of what he knows. A very good insight for mm-hmm. how reading gets done. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end, he stared down at the blurred page before him. It could have said he screamed. It could have said he fainted. Mm-hmm. It could have said he had a heart attack. But it said he began to cry. This story begins with eyesight. We focus on the glasses. We focus on words like focus. We think about words like see. We can come back again and again to the idea of reading. The reading that this man does is a newspaper, which would connect him with the world, but he is in fact envaulted and cut off from the world. Turns out that's the only thing that would have saved him, Mm -hmm. although he desperately wants to be in the world. He can do it through his eyes. As I find it amazing that he can be a bank teller given the quality of his eyes, but mm-hmm. okay, he had the glasses. And what he was reading in the vault was a pocket-sized magazine. Mm-hmm. In other words, he was reading a pulp magazine like the one this story appears in. This is a story about the power of sight, particularly the power of sight as the access to reading Mm -hmm. and throughout the words remind us how crucial it is to be able to read well to read pulp fiction well so at the end when it says he began to cry that's the water coming out of his eyes Mm -hmm. this is so cleverly done the wife he doesn't grieve for her he grieves for the library it's amazing and you know probably you didn't get this i maybe if i if i'm wrong uh, forgive me jesse but Mm -hmm. as i said i remember 1953 1953 was the last year in which the aldrich family was a popular radio drama a sitcom actually Mm -hmm. um what we would now call a sitcom and i remember hearing it uh, on the radio the opening always had the mother the mother yelling out Henry! (laughs) And then him answering, Coming, Mother. 
I think in 1953, when this was published, when Agnes calls out Henry mm-hmm. and Venable writes it with all those E's so that you're made to say it that way, most people would understand that this is a reference to someone, a boy who is being kept under the thumb of his mother, a teenage yep. boy, right, not allowed to grow up rather than a husband and a wife, mm-hmm. right? There are crucial references here. He picks up the collected works of William Shakespeare. I've got to tell you, when I graduated from high school in 1962, my parents got me a graduation gift. Mm. And you know what it was? Mm. It was a leather-bound, gold-leaf-edged, complete works of William Shakespeare. That had a, a resonance here in the Eisenhower era. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I, that was really, really important. And and he, what is what does Henry do? He says, "I'll read it sometime." Yeah. Sometime. Then he picks up Spinoza. Mm-hmm. Spinoza is the great rationalist, a Jew who looks at um, a Portuguese Jew who looks at the the history of biblical criticism and tries to demonstrate that the Bible should not be taken as as stories that really happened. Mm. He never says God doesn't exist, but he is in fact taken not only as a rationalist, but an atheist. Something isn't going right. This guy, this 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 Henry, he is not a beamish boy to, no. <laughs> uh, to, to go back to Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland. He is someone who's been constrained by m- the need to make money. His time has been bought. Mr. Carsville is the head of the bank. Right, the Carsville is a, a clearly a capitalist outpost of industry. Mm-hmm. It's the East Side Bank and Trust, like East of Eden. And you look over the the top of it, and it says P U B C L I B R. It could be public library, but also given that this Henry is just like the Henry in the Aldrich family, it could be pubic liberation. Yep. Right. This story has so much richness in it. You can't get that by just watching a television episode go by. But Venable has put it in here. And I think if we read this with care, we realize just how how brilliantly it's compacted mm. so much about the need to be able to read, even pulp fiction, to be able to live an imaginative life to be able to grow up to have a life of your own. This is a story about the necessity of maturing and using your mind, your eyes, your reading to do it. But this is 1953. We're playing duck and cover in the public schools. Mm -hmm. The newspaper articles are all about how the weapons will kill you. The conference is making no progress. Mm. It's not that Henry can't grow up. It's that from his very birth with defective eyes, that's what God gave him, Mm. we're told. And then he picks up Spinoza. From his very birth with defective eyes, so that people mistakenly think he's an idiot, Mm -hmm. until the very end, it's things done to him that make it impossible for him to grow up. So even though... He shows no grief for his wife. I think we still 
I think we still side with Henry. Oh, yeah. Because this poor guy, you know, he wants what we want, what we readers want. <laughs> he wants to be able to read mm-hmm. and contemplate even the bad things. He looks forward to looking to reading those articles about everything that's bad, as we do here. This, this, this story not only makes a terrific parable for the dangers of the world of 1953, it also is social criticism. And I would point out, before I yield the floor to my friend in Vancouver, 1953 is also the year in which Fahrenheit 451 is mm-hmm. published. And there again, we have a wife who wants nothing to do but watch the television. Mm. People don't read. In fact, in Bradbury's novel, reading is considered downright bad. And here, Henry doesn't consider reading bad. Indeed, books and being gathered in a public library and made available. But there are enough people and there's enough going on in technology and society to make reading be pushed further and further aside. Bradbury took it a lot further on a social basis. Venable made it happen all at once on a technological basis. I think this is a terrific story in general and incredibly apt for its time. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. The, uh, the, the hilarious thing about this story is that <laughs> it's, it's a simple story. Henry Bemis had an ambition to read a book. Wow. <laughs> so ambitious, right? What turns out, he actually never gets that, right? He 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 barely reads anything in this in this whole story. It's all about reading. He tries to read uh an article, he reads the headlines of a few things in the newspaper. His wife only cares about the newspaper because it has the TV schedule and she, he can't watch he can't read while she watches TV. She forces him to watch TV with her, uh, she he can't you know uh, be reading up in his room or in the basement while she's playing canasta. He has to be there, and his boss you know no breaks for you. Oh, I'm stealing some time by not stealing money down in the vault. He's stealing some time, and he pulls out as you say a, a pocket-sized magazine, and he st- starts to read it, and then the world ends right. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like he caused it by s- doing that little sin of stealing some of his boss's time. Um, but I wanted to talk about um, those newspaper headlines he skips over so that he can get to the one that, oh, it's just short enough. I might be able to get it in before his wife sweeps in and says it's time for you to shave and all that stuff. So um, this is what the newspaper says. He had glanced at the headlines of the first page. Collapse of conference in, imminent. Well, what conference could that be? He didn't He didn't have time to read that article. That word time comes up endlessly in this story, right? He returned to the second page. Uh, he turned to the second page. Solon predicts war only days away. He flipped through the pages faster, reading brief snatches. Uh, on the back, prehistoric artifacts unearthed in Yucatan. <laughs> okay, so this is all about, you know, imminent disaster and then ancient objects from prehistory uh, oh that sounds interesting I love how he just skips over the fact that the nuclear war is about to happen um, but I also noticed um, the, the name Solon predicts war only days away 
Um, Solon isn't a regular guy in American culture, as far as I can tell. Not in the 1950s. Um, however, no, Solon I... is a famous figure from Greek uh, a democracy. Um, he's the guy who freed the slaves uh, in ancient Greece. AKA. Actually, you may well be right about that, but um, it, the way we, these days we say an Einstein, um, a Solon is a wise man. Yeah. The word, the name, the name Solon means a wise man. So when it says Solon did this, it means it's like saying a a wise man did it in the reduced grammar of newspaper headlines. Yeah, um, it, it's actually a name that comes up uh, in other science fiction too. He, he's a he's a uh, Frankenstein-like figure in a Doctor Who episode. Solon is an <laughs> is an ancient a, a, an ancient name. And in this case, Solon predicts war only days away. Um, they're not, I don't think, they're not necessarily, the important part is that this is a reference that everybody at the time would sort of be vaguely familiar with. In the same way you were saying, Henry Bemis <laughs> was a callback to a radio drama. That's in Star Trek as well. Uh, Harcourt Fenton Mud, right? <laughs> Is, is, is this is a similar figure cursed after his wife has been um, uh, taken away from him graciously? He thinks they recreate her as a as an android <laughs> to forever hound him in the way he's he hates being hounded. The the real tragedy here should be that his he's lost his wife and his family and his community, but the only real tragedy is that he's lost his glasses and. He, this figure is a Greek tragic hero in the sense that everything is conspiring against him. At, he's born with a tragic flaw, his eyes. His parents think he's an idiot. Once they get him some glasses, he spends the rest of his life catching up. Just catching up. If I can just catch up. And he steals time here and there to, you know, in the house... If he folds the paper very quietly, his wife won't hear. That'll be a clarion call. If if his wife hears the newspaper being folded, that means he's free. That means he's there. And then she can put him to work. So him being freed and liberated, as, as that public pubic library um, shows up, his, his liberation, it's a trick. The gods cursed him at birth. So uh, what's so funny is that this is, you know, a disaster for humanity, but we only care about this guy who's been stuck in the basement uh, of the of the bank and so, somehow survived, and we care about his ambitions. Another way of doing this twist would be to have the wife show up and says, I was in the fallout shelter. <laughs> I knew I would catch you at the library. <laughs> and then she drags him off to start cleaning the, the yard or whatever. But uh, the tragedy is built into the story and it's it's perfect it's why it is such a great story it's perfect it's set up perfectly the the number of times words are repeated uh you know the word time over and over again newspaper newspaper or this line uh something momentous had happened something worse than the boiler blowing up, something worse than a gas main exploding, something worse than anything that had ever happened before. It's very simple, 
but it, it, it's it's like these three curses, these three curses, this in the newspaper, this in the newspaper, and then it the tragic thing happens, and then we get that final tragedy. A small, a small, tiny little tragedy. But that's the only thing left on the planet. Poor little Henry, Henry Bemis. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.